You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 26th of September 2021 on Monocle 24. And a very good morning to you. We're live in London and Zurich and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up on today's programme, Germany heads to the polls to decide who will succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor. Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak, will have the very latest from Berlin. Plus, we leaf through the day's newspapers with Stephanie Bolton, Christoph Munger and Terry Stiersny. Terry's in the studio with me now. What have you seen, Terry? Good morning. Well, there's an interesting story here in the Sunday Times. What it says is a handbrake turn over lorry drivers splits Brexit backers and it's talking about uh, the self-described Spartans who were the the Tory MPs who are very strongly pro-Brexit who are now apparently divided about how to deal with some of the consequences such as a shortage of lorry drivers. Thank you Terry. Much more from her from Stephanie and Christoph shortly. Plus we hear from our Quality of Life conference in Athens and get a roundup of stories from the Balkans. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll have all the latest from the region, including Croatia's demographic disaster and a massive new gallery for Ljubljana. It's the 26th of September 2021, live from London and Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. A busy hour today. Let's have a look at the headlines. Before we start with it all, Germans are voting in parliamentary elections that mark the end of Angela Merkel's 16 years in office. At least three people have died and 50 others have been hurt in a train derailment in Montana. And voters in Switzerland go to the polls today to decide whether to allow same-sex marriage. Those are the headlines. And we begin today's programme in Germany, which is voting to determine who will succeed Angela Merkel as the country's chancellor. Frau Merkel has dominated German politics for almost two decades, but her Conservative bloc has struggled without her on the ticket and there's a real chance that the centre-left Social Democrats could emerge as Germany's biggest party. Well, let's cross live to Berlin now to get the very latest from Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Good morning, Emma, from a cool but sunny Berlin over here. Um, It's it's good to hear that, uh, that, that you're there to report on the ground as to what exactly is happening. But just before we get into the ins and outs, could you just remind us what people are voting for today? So, yes, we are voting. uh, Actually, in Berlin, they're voting for two things, but basically they're voting for the German parliament, uh, the Bundestag. um, And this will, you know, essentially, uh, therefore, also inform who will be the country's next chancellor. Uh, Angela Merkel has made clear that she is not in the running. So there will be a new chancellor after this. What people are voting for today really is the makeup of the parties. Um, Each three of the parties, the SPD, the Social Democrats, Christian Democrats, and the Greens have put forward a chancellor candidate. One of them will become chancellor after this, but first we're going to have to see, as he said at the top there, first which party comes out in front, and then second, who they can form any kind of coalition with, because none of the parties is going to get a majority on their own. This is, the, this is the only certainty out of this, apart from Angela Merkel's departure, is that whatever happens, there will be a coalition. So what have people in Berlin been telling you about what they believe may happen? Well, it's really hard to say. There is still a fair amount of uncertainty. At least about one third of people have voted already by mail. So we do have some indication. But, uh, you know, polling stations are a little bit more quiet as a result of that. But there was a lot of last-minute campaigning still happening 
this weekend, and I think that really reflects the uncertainty that we're seeing. This has really been one of the more up-and-down races, particularly over the summer months. Three different parties have been in the lead at some point during this race. And I think what's particularly where some of the uncertainty comes from is that the Christian Democrats of Angela Merkel face potentially, you know, their worst result really in post-war history. But they have also been, maybe because of that almost, getting a little bit of a late surge. You wonder if, you know, some of their sort of voters who have been voting for them for so long are having slight second thoughts, if you will, about whether whether to go for a different party after all, whether to go for an Olaf Scholz of the Social Democrats. So that's kind of where we are at the moment. Uncertainty, a lot of campaigning. And I was actually out on the campaign trail a little bit yesterday. Um, I followed uh, Franziska Giffey. She is the candidate for mayor of Berlin of the Social Democrats. She's also known on the national scene. She was family minister for a while, but she's kind of returned to more local politics, if you will. And not unlike nationally, her, her party, even in Berlin, had looked like it was actually out of the picture at the start of the summer. The Greens were the party that everyone was talking about. And even here in Berlin, the Greens looked like the party to potentially beat. Um, I spoke to her actually out on the campaign trail in eastern Berlin in a, in a little town or part of eastern Berlin called Lichtenberg. And I spoke to her a bit about what she thinks brought her party back from the brink. So um, I think we, we have to focus on social justice. We have to focus on a pragmatic and very citizen-orientated political approach. And um, for example, here in Berlin, we said, okay, we make a program which is really clear and understandable to the people. We made our program uh, with the five Bs for Berlin, which is um, building housing, affordable housing, which is uh, investing in education, which is investing in a strong economy for good and fair working conditions, and also in a functioning administration and in security, social security, and also uh, the security on the streets. And uh, what we see here when we are in Lichtenberg for example we have a situation where people want to feel safe and it's really important to have a strong police and to have a secure safe and clean city which is for many people important yeah and also we want to, to develop Berlin as a very open city as a city of freedom as a city which is um, a very nice to live in yeah and uh, for that reason we have to focus on some um, topics which are really uh, important for the, for the development of our city for example the climate change the family friendliness the question of the city of, of culture the city of sports the city of uh, science and technology and we want to develop Berlin as the most developed city in techniques and technology and in economy in Europe so it's a clear vision it's a clear citizen-orientated approach and it is um, the focus on, on social security and on social justice. Just listening to that, Chris, we have um, very much that portrait that Germany is like every other country insofar as it has its own regional issues um, and its own challenges and, and, and each party will play into that. I mean, Berlin there talking about Frau Giffey talking about how a need for housing a need for strong education and a need for security it's a very different world from let's say if you're in Bavaria or if you're in sort of like the north the, the northeast of the country is this the issue that that there is no one leader who can actually unite the country 
Well, I, I think you're right on that. There are a lot of different issues throughout the country, of course. But one thing that struck me about Francisca Giffey and what speaks to, to the country, if you will, at large, is the fact that she is a relative moderate. You know, she, she spoke about social justice there, but then she also spoke about the importance of a strong police. She is not somebody from the left wing of her party. She is a relative centrist, and that is very similar in that sense to Olaf Scholz, the current leader of the Social Democrats, who has really led his party to a resurgence in the polls. They were down in third place, way, you know, way down at this time last year and even early in the start of the summer. And this campaign, in that sense, maybe to what you're talking about with, with sort of the differing issues, it's been a bit more about personalities in that sense. You know, Angela Merkel is leaving. Most people do, I think, you know, accept that it is time for her to leave. It's not that there is a, such a strong desire for her to stay. But when it comes to who the next person is who takes up that mantle, people are a little bit nervous. And so they've been looking at these, these candidates that are going to replace her. And Olaf Scholz is really the one who people know. He's, he's the deputy chancellor. He's finance minister. He's been around for a while. He's a moderate. He's sensible. He's practical. And so I think he's been seen as sort of that successor in terms of his style. And that's really what, what has worked, if you will, for him in a campaign where issues have not dominated quite as much. Even something like climate change, for example. Climate change has been one of the biggest issues along with the pandemic in this campaign. But the very fact that the Greens are not in the lead speaks to this idea that, if you will, the, the voters still have other issues on their mind as well. And they are looking at personalities. Annalena Baerbock of the Greens has not impressed as much despite climate change being the key issue. And then, of course, there is Amin Laschet of the Christian Democrats, the successor to Angela Merkel. He has not impressed on the campaign trail. He just has not quite looked like a chancellor material, if you will. A lot of people are a little bit worried about that. So really, this campaign has been more about those personalities than it has been about the issues. Chris Chermak in Berlin, thank you so much for joining us at the start of Monaco on Sunday. Let's introduce today's panellists. Christoph Munger is head of the Foreign News Desk at Tagus Anzeiger at the political journalist and author Terry Stiasny and Stephanie Boltzen, UK and Ireland correspondent at Die Welt. A very good morning to you. We have a room of big hitters today. Christoph, you're, you're flying the flag over in Dufourstrasse 90. Um, how is Zurich this morning? Oh, quite foggy, actually. Uh, I hope the sun will come out during the day, but uh, it, it, it's a, this, some sort of a weather change this weekend, I, I'm afraid. Yes. It, it, it starts to rain next week. It all goes yes. away. That lovely summer that we enjoyed for 10 minutes last week <laughs> has gone away. Um, Christoph, I'm assuming that you, you have uh, eagle eyes on what's happening in Germany today. Yes, absolutely, and uh, I strongly agree what what Chris said from Berlin. I think it's quite an open race, and uh, uh, the Laschet made up a little bit last week after before it really looked at Olaf Scholz is going to win this surprisingly going to win this but uh, I'm expecting a very close race uh, which makes it probably even more complicated uh, to, to to build a government afterwards yes. It's uh, all going to be terribly complicated watching this as well incredibly closely is Stephanie Boltzon. Good morning Stephanie. Good morning. So good to have you in the studio. Um, I must ask as a journalist obviously you will be excited by all this. But as a German, how does this all feel today? 
I'm actually more excited as a German, I must say, as a as a German voter, because I think it's it's a real end of an era of Angela Merkel leaving uh, the political stage in in Germany after 16 years, and there is. I spent the summer in Germany and spent a lot of time with friends and family, and there is a nervousness and a bit of excitement as well that people are aware something new is coming. What is what is going to come after Mutti? Uh, I don't like the term at all, but. Um, after someone who has been there for such a long time and to be fair to her really has steered and navigated Germany through three massive crises, the financial crisis, the refugee crisis and then the pandemic. So um, what what is coming after that? And the interesting thing is not so much even the big parties, I think. It's the smaller parties, the Liberals and the Greens, which will be needed to form a government. And how can you bring these parties together? This is exciting and also a little bit scary. It is a little bit scary. And I've, I find this a really strange election, um, Terry, insofar as this is as much about who is leaving as who is coming in. And it is a it's not necessarily a 100% forward-facing election, is it? No, that is, uh, it is interesting. And it is this, you know, this very strong sense of continuity that you've had. And you've had, you know, the candidates almost all sort of campaigning saying, we're going to do things pretty much the same. After, you know, having had someone in power for a long time, it's really strange to have candidate people's campaign not be vote for me because I'm new. It's vote for me because I'm, I'm pretty much like the last, you know, the last person. But also all the images that we've seen over the last few days, those amazing images of Angela Merkel going to a sort of a bird park with sort of parakeets perching on her hands and head. The images that you see there are the images of you know her famous hand gesture and so forth. Yeah, people are kind of looking back at the last sixteen years, and they do. I think I get the sense that voters want that reassurance that there is still going to be stability, rather than any sense of suddenly we want something new and different. What is the desire from Zurich, Christoph, in terms of who they want to to replace Frau Merkel and and how they feel about her departure and her and her influence over the last sixteen years? Uh, of of course, uh, it's a great era that it's going to end now or in the next few months. However, from a Swiss point of view, probably there won't be a big change. Switzerland has to uh, come along with Europe as a whole. As of course, Germany is the most important partner, the most important neighbor. But even if there is a Chancellor Scholz or Chancellor Laschet, it won't be a big different, big difference for Switzerland. And maybe I, I might to add. I mean, uh, lo- lots, lo- lots of Germans are afraid because now something is going to change. Uh, however, I mean, I'm not so sure whether there is so much change afterwards because I mean, Olaf Scholz is in the middle ground, maybe on the left hand side. Armin Laschet is also in the middle ground, but on the right hand side. So uh, I've, I'm going. I'm expecting uh, some more continuity than change. Um, the astonishing thing is, though, is that the, the amount of change that, that Angela Merkel actually enacted while in power, uh, you mentioned the three crises that she steered Germany through, the financial crisis, um, the immigration crisis, and then COVID. There's this amazing article in this weekend's New York Times, which portrays Germany as, um, it says, the Frau Merkel changed Germany into a modern society in a country less defined by its history. And she made it Normal. She saw where the country was going and allowed it to go there with um, huge, uh, you know, with the, with the, the stabilisation of the of the middle classes, with um, the fact that you know we can have uh, gay marriage as well. She was a woman who allowed Germany to sort of find its feet again. I don't agree with that. I do not agree with that. I mean, um, I think Angela Merkel has mainly been reactive. 
she was reactive to the Fukushima disaster in 2011 when she suddenly decided to face our nuclears. She was also reacted in the refugee crisis because she, of course, she saw the situation, the horrific situation in Hungary at the time and, and allowed um, more than one million refugees in. Um, in, in terms of, of gay marriage, for example, she was she was actually forced to to introduce legislation. So I think she has been very good at managing crises, but she hasn't transformed or reformed Germany. That's also the zeitgeist. I mean, if you look around, I mean, Switzerland today, finally, they are voting on this. Or Well, they vote because the uh, one party was uh, provoking it. But um, I think she Merkel has been more driven by events than she really created events. And little, looking across the border over into Austria, Terry Hoff, can you hands up if you're half Austrian? <laughs> Terry yes. raises her hand. Um, this, is a, this is an interesting thing. I mean, we have to go back to 2015, don't we, where we have Angela Merkel taking almost a, a unilateral decision of we will, wir schaffen das, we will, we will take this on. And this almost in, in so many ways from, from many foreign points of view, it defines her chancellorship. But if you were in Austria in 2015 and you were going to the main train station in Vienna, you were wondering what on earth was happening. Uh, yes, and I think, you know, it, I've just been looking at a little bit of the, the Austrian coverage and it, it's there, there seems to be actually very little uh, in the last couple of days, certainly, about well, what what will this mean for Austria, a change in government? There was a, there's a big analysis of how uh, the German political parties, although they're sort of, you know, obviously similar to the Austrian ones, are slightly different in their, in their kind of emphasis. But I think, uh, yes, Austria will always be looking to Germany to see sort of how the land lies, they'll be concerned about you know issues like how Germany plans to deal uh, with climate change, how they plan to deal with energy supplies, and obviously you know immigration is is something that affects Austria as well. And and then Austria is in this slightly strange position because you've got countries further to the east, sort of Hungary and Poland, again going sort of more and more illiberal. And Austria always finds itself in that you know that the position. I mean you know Sebastian Kurz has been he's been there for quite a while now. There's a you know sort of more of a political stability there. But I think they they always worry about you know what is what is going on in, in in the neighboring countries. It is an astonishing fact. I think I read somewhere, Stephanie, that there are now more Syrians working as doctors in Germany than any other nationality after Germans, including Europeans. Which many would argue is is that brilliant German way of absorbing immigrants and using them to the absolute best of their ability to making them socially and economically relevant. Well, I, I I don't think it's such a rosy story either. Yeah, but um, there was I mean five uh, 2015. So at the end of um, 2025 years after the refugee crisis, there were a lot of really matter of fact analysis of how Germany has coped. And the truth is, Germany has coped well. I mean, more than 50 percent of um, refugees were in work or in, in in university. You have a lot of wonderful stories of young young kids that uh, came to Germany are completely integrated, uh, speaking German and so on. But you must mustn't forget that this has polarized Germany a lot. And that's why we have the AFD. And no one's talking, luckily, about the AFD much this election, but they are still polling 12%, and especially in um, in uh, Eastern Germany. So um, while, of course, it has been a good story, and it proves how migration and immigration works, but you see now with Afghanistan and how desperate all the parties were to make sure that uh, there will not be another refugee crisis. But where are these people? They are now stuck in Turkey and sooner or later they will be stuck in Greece. So it's it's a bit of an illusion that this was once in a lifetime, we did it well and now we can move on. Um, Christoph, let's look at who may be uh, replacing Frau Merkel at the chance, uh, as, as Chancellor. We don't know. I mean, we have the two big hitters, don't we? We have Olaf Schulz and Armin Laschet. On the left, 
ish, Olaf Schultz, and on the right ish, Armin Laschet, and Annalena Baerbock, who was touted as perhaps Chancellor at the beginning of this race, leader of the Greens, and how her star fell. Everything became incredibly tumultuous over the summer, didn't it, for, for oh, arguably almost all of the candidates? Oh yes, of course. I mean, and the, the beginning of uh, of Mrs. Baerbock was was great, and then then she made a few mistakes. But I, even at the beginning, I thought I, I can't imagine Germany uh, to have a, a green chancellor. I, I think that's maybe too early. Uh, I mean, that, that's often if if a campaign starts, there's a big fireworks, and everybody thinks that this is the person who's going to be in, in the, the chancellor. But uh, I think that the, the Greens have important issues and they are most probably will be in the government, however, uh, notwithstanding who is going to win it, but uh, uh, they will be in, in the government. But uh, I, I couldn't imagine that, that uh, the Greens are going to win uh, the whole election. However, I have to admit that the, the Greens are very, very popular among the young people, uh, among the under 40 years old people, and maybe in, I, might, I don't know, in four years or in eight years, uh, we will see a Green Chancellor. Christo's right, isn't he? The, the Greens are arguably a huge voice for the future of Germany. Um, but it does seem quite strange that they haven't done so well this time around. It is all down, as Chris Chermak said earlier, down to personality, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's down to personality. Um, maybe the colleague in Zurich will smile now a little bit. It had to do also a bit with my newspaper. So uh, we went what for... What did Anna- you do, Stephanie? I d- I'm not personally, <laughs> I wasn't involved, but it was very clear that as soon as Annalena Baerbock was going to be the Spitzenkandidatin, they would look at her very thoroughly. And um, we found a lot of things that were not quite right. So her, her, her CV was completely hyped. Um, and um, that was something that, but then uh, everyone agreed um, how unprofessional the Green Party prepared her uh, candidacy in terms of thoroughly looking point by point through her CV and saying, is that right? Because all the journalists and especially those who might be critical of your party, they will look at this and it fell apart. And then she was, um, of course, there was a story before that, that there was uh, Robert Habeck, who's the other head of the Greens and... Um, he was very popular, but he stepped back and let her being the, the candidate, which was also very controversial. Plus, when she was then kind of caught of having been hyping her own life story, um, she was in TV uh, debates and she was pretty sulking. And I think at, time, at, at times, of course, and then it's also the, the misogyny that came out as well, um, which despite Angela Merkel being 16 years a woman chancellor, the misogyny in, in Germany was quite breathtaking and, and Angela, um, Annalena Baerbock got beaten up badly. That's hard. And it's hard. And, and just listening to that, Terry, I mean, can you imagine in, in the United Kingdom if someone slightly massaged the numbers and their CV and, you know, didn't quite and, 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 you know, behaved in a sort of slightly unprofessional way and had their part hyped up? That could never happen here in the UK, could it? <laughs> I, mean, I think it absolutely. And trouble is people in the UK kind of get away with it at the moment. You it's know, almost celebrated there, there, here. There are, there are so many stories that, that come out. And, and I think, you know, it's it's right about the... Uh, sort of the professionalism or other of of politics and and you know the Green Party we forget you know it's not you know it's almost I suppose twenty years ago now that they they were in power and the 
there's always been this kind of tension with the Greens whether, well, do we actually want to take power and change things or do we want to be kind of on the fringes and protesting? And they had a phase of being in power, but now there's, there's they are more... I would say they're probably more professional, you know, as a party than they would have been. But they obviously didn't do that kind of political due diligence of going through and going, look, is there anything that you need to tell us now? Because it's going to come out, you know, during the during the course of, of an election campaign. And, you know, you know, parties in, in most countries have got quite good at saying, you know, we actually need to go through this. But, you know, still scandals turn up, things turn up that you didn't expect or that people, you know, your candidate decided not to tell their advisors. Um, Stephanie, let's bring you back again on the in the issue of scandals. Um, it's funny, Armin Laschet managed to get himself into real trouble by laughing, smiling in the background when there were um, when there were floods in Germany earlier this year. I mean, that is a very simple, basic mistake to make, isn't it? But then when you look at Olaf Scholz, there's been quite a lot of reporting on the fact that he has, as finance minister, has has been present or has been around when there have been some pretty serious scandals going on in Germany, the, the Wirecard fraud case. And um, there is some legal case at the moment to do with fraud, which he is, he is being questioned about. The way I describe that is in that way is because it is incredibly complicated. And many are suggesting that um, his scandals are too opaque to be understood, whereas you can pick up on Annalena Baerbock's dodgy CV. You can pick up on Armin Laschet when he smiles at the wrong time. Mm, exactly. I think it's a question of complexity and it's, it's a... I don't know if that's a modern day phenomena or it's just something that has always been the case. I mean, seeing um, the candidate of the CDU um, laughing and joking while the president is on air talking about his sympathy for people who lost everything in the floods. Well, first of all, how 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 stupid by Laschet's advisors to not make sure that he's not in the picture. Um, I, I do understand on a human level, I completely understand you are on the campaign trail. It's really exhausting. People come up to you and also also really want to be nice to the to the candidate and make some jokes. And of course you laugh. It's something human, but don't be in the picture on air while, you, while, while you're laughing. And um, when it comes to um, Olaf Scholz, and as you say, whether it's Wirecard or the other affair, and also the, there was a police investigation in, in his ministry like four weeks ago, it is highly complex. And he was very good on air to, 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 to shift the blame away from himself. And people also thought, oh, God, this is so complicated. It's easier to say, oh, Laschet has been laughing at people hit, being hit by the flood by then understanding what the Wirecard scandal is about. Isn't one of the things I was going to pick up on this, you were talking about scandals. I think one of the things that people will remember about Merkel is this kind of air of sort of personal incorruptibility that she had. I mean, if you think she came, one of the reasons that she came through as a candidate, you know, back in the day was that they had so many party funding scandals in the CDU that affected Kohl, that affected Schäuble. And then you had this very sort of personally modest woman, you know, who goes on holiday to the same place every year, who does her own shopping in a little supermarket. You can't really imagine her head kind of being being turned by, you know, by by money in that way. And I think that was one of the reasons that she she emerged. And I think people really underestimated her um, at the beginning of her, her time in the CDU. And they didn't really realise that she was going to become such a big figure because she was kind of seemed kind of quiet and unassuming and I think that was quite an important factor and I think it's one of the things that people will look back at. And tell us um, Christoph in Zurich that the idea of having this modest woman who has stewarded Germany through 16 years of, of chancery what 
does Zurich now, what, do, well, what does, does Switzerland now want from the next Chancellor? Given the fact that Germany is the, the, the richest nation in, in, in the EU and, and, you know, Switzerland nearby, um, what, what do they expect Germany to do on the world stage for them? And they hope that they help them to sort out the relationship with the European Union. That's basically the most important thing. And uh, Switzerland has a problem with the EU. They had this so-called Rahmenvertrag and that uh, imploded a couple of months ago. So uh, there is uh, now the relationship is not really clear between Brussels and Bern. And they hope that, um, that, that the Chancellor of Germany is going to help them in Brussels. And uh, I mean, Angela Merkel wasn't a big friend uh, of Switzerland. She came here for holidays to the Engadin, but uh, she wasn't very, I mean, politically, she wasn't too fond of Switzerland. She had other problems uh, to deal with, we heard about, and uh, Switzerland is not was not on the top of her uh, agenda. However, uh, I mean, for, for example, with uh, Steinmeier, when, when he was still in, in, in the government, they had a very good relationship from the Federal Council, the, the Swiss government, to Germany. Now, uh, with high commas, it's a bit different. They hope that they get some direct connection to Berlin so that they got, got some, some assistance in Brussels then. However, even Olaf Scholz or uh, Armin Lasche, they are not too much interested in Switzerland. I mean, that's a working relationship. They are not too big problems. They have some with, sometimes with the airport or little things they can be sorted out. But the, the Swiss, they would like to have a voice in Brussels, a German voice, but I'm not so confident whether they, uh, whether they get it or not. The likelihood of a loud, loud Swiss voice in Brussels. Stephanie, what are your thoughts? Oh, this is uh, when we're talking about complexity and I, I, (laughs) oh my God, I mean, if you only talk about the word or the Rahmenvertrag and how long this has been going on and... uh, What does it mean? uh, The Rahmenvertrag is, uh, and uh, Christoph will will, will know much better, it's it's a very complex relationship between Switzerland and of course Switzerland is not a member of the European Union and they have, I think, more than 100 bilateral contracts and because Brussels always wanted them to align, I mean, dynamic alignment, something that rings a bell here in 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 uh, with the brexiteers they, they get crazy if they hear that word um, which means that they should actually adopt their laws according to to eu law when it develop, um, evolves and that was as far as i remember rejected and um yeah talks have broken down and and the eu when they they are very strong because they are big, a big beast. And um, so it, it, the relationship is very tense currently. And as far as I know, I haven't followed it lately, but there is no solution. So, so far. Um, just that's talking about the sort of the way that Germany actually leads a lot of the, the, the law and, and, and its leading voice. I mean, Terry, it, is, it, it cannot be underestimated, the, the influence of Germany over, over the European Union. The, the fact that it is the leading voice and rather Angela Merkel has been the leading voice. Of, well, of there. she's been many of people have said that she's been a, the, the boss of Europe. Are we going to see post Merkel Macron clearly muscling in in France trying to say, OK, we'll take the baton from here. Thank you very much. Or are we going to see some sort of recalibration um, as, as Germany says, actually, we are the biggest beast well, in this I think game? Next year is going to be a bit of a, a year, sort of an uncertain year, because, I mean, of course, Macron has got his own election, you know, coming up in, in France in the next year. He is not going to be able to be putting all of his all of his focus onto sort of leading the EU. Uh, you know, we've seen all the arguments about submarines, about new strategic relationships that, you know, people might like to take on that role. But it, it very much depends uh, who who's going to be in power and 
and what the future, you know, what the future direction is going to be. And, and of course, there's always that element of, you know, the personal chemistry. How do people get on? How does the new chancellor, whoever they turn out to be, get on with, you know, the next French president, whoever that may turn out to be? So I think this is going to be still a year where people are kind of finding their feet and and trying to decide what what does you know what direction they're going to be taking. Terry Siasny, Chris Stephanie Bolton here in the studio in London and Christoph Munger, thank you for the moment. We'll be coming back to them a little bit later on for more stories. We're not just focusing on the German elections today. In a moment we head to the Balkans. Stay with us on Monocle on Sunday. Get going this autumn with Monocle's October issue with a refreshed look and feel, new regular features, but that self-same commitment to great journalism. From a sit-down with Estonia's Prime Minister to a correspondence diary in Afghanistan, we bring you the stories that matter. Hear how Pete Buttigieg is shaping American transport, see how Beirut is building back better, and sneak a peek inside the Louvre's cutting-edge conservation centre. That plus restaurants to reserve, brands to browse and albums to unwind with. Order Monocle's October issue today or subscribe at monocle.com to get instant access online. you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. We're off to the Balkans now to hear from our correspondent in the region, Guy Deloni, on the line from the Slovenian capital, Ljubljana. Good morning, Guy. Good morning, Emma, and good morning, everyone. It's lovely to have you with us. What a joy on a Sunday. Um, tell us what news from where you are. Well, I think the big news from Croatia is that despite the fact that it's had an absolutely smashing 2021 tourist season, breaking some of the records that were set in 2019 pre-pandemic, in terms of its own population, it's actually running out of people because the latest figures just out this week show that uh, between this year and 2013, so over an eight-year period, School registrations, registrations of school students have declined by 10% in that period. And we've also just registered um, in June this year um, the lowest birth rate in Croatia for 140 years. In other words, since records began. So this is obviously a big problem for Croatia because if you've got a booming tourist industry, um, how are you going to service that industry if you're rapidly running out of people? And do we know why people aren't making more people? (laughs) That that, that is a good question. I think one of the reasons may be because the young people who are most likely to make more people aren't in Croatia to the extent that they were. Because Croatia, as people may remember, joined the European Union in 2013. And... um, one or two countries immediately gave Croatians the ability to have freedom of movement to travel there. Most notably, Ireland was was the one. And uh, almost instantly, great swathes of Ireland became little little Zagrebs. Uh, about uh, between two hundred and four hundred thousand people are reckoned to have left Croatia in the past eight years. And that is from a country of four million people. And I'm not exaggerating when I say there are certain counties in in Croatia now which is virtually empty. Um, There are some places where really there are very few people indeed. And of course, that exacerbates the effect. If you're the one who's left behind, you're thinking maybe I should get out as well. Are we seeing any uh, sign that this problem is, is being addressed? Because surely Croatia is going to try to make itself as attractive as it possibly can. And from what you've described, if it has a booming tourism industry, there are surely jobs to be had. Yes, there are jobs to be had. The problem is that until now, and this is kind of the problem that Britain's been seeing lately with certain industries, the conditions on offer to people for those jobs haven't been attractive enough for them to take those up. They'd rather 
go to Ireland and do something there where they've got a certain amount of salary and a better standard of living than be in Croatia where the salary and conditions on offer in the hospitality industry aren't particularly good. So this is something which Croatia is grappling with and it doesn't know quite how to do it. Do we bring in more guest workers or are we going to have a rethink about where we're going with our tourism industry so that we can uh, provide jobs for people that will actually make them want to stay? And this is not just a problem in Croatia. There are reports that Bosnia has the same issue as well. Do you know, there was a really poignant story that I saw on one of the Bosnian websites earlier this week, which said that there was a school in a place called uh, Traunik, which had precisely one student and and one teacher. And this teacher was travelling every day for an hour each way to, to be not just the teacher to the student, but their friend as, as well. And th- this was a place which was a regional school. It wasn't even like a village school or something like that. It was a school which previously would have had children from villages in a particular area. And those areas, again, people are disappearing from them. Well, we reckon we're losing about 30,000 people a year from Bosnia. And Bosnia, again, country with about 3 million people officially there. And anybody who can, for example, get a Croatian passport um, leaves because they can travel freely through the European Union. And there's an awful lot of Bosnian Croats. And this is the same issue as, as, as Croatia is having, that the... the the working conditions in Bosnia or the jobs around in Bosnia are not quite as attractive as something in, in, in another country within the member state. And it's exacerbated by the fact that, at least in Croatia, you are a member of the European Union. You do have a functioning democracy. It's not perfect, um, but, you know, there are plenty of things, plenty of reasons to believe that, that life might get better there. Bosnia really is mm, barely a functioning state at all. It's ethnically divided down the middle, and the politicians follow a divide-and-rule strategy, which is good for them, but not for anybody else. Uh, let's move on to uh, Zagreb. And uh, while everybody is running away, um, the mayor is trying to do everything that they can to try and make sure that the city is a, is an, is a popular and an attractive place to live and work. Now, this is one thing which may encourage people to stay in Croatia, is a new breed of politicians. And this is exemplified by Tomislav Tomasiewicz, who last time I looked was actually now the most popular political figure in Croatia. That might have changed over the last couple of weeks, but certainly the last survey I saw placed him at the top of the pile in terms of Croatia's most popular politicians. And he's just taken over as Zagreb's mayor earlier this year. That's following a a reign. I I feel um, entitled to say the word reign when talking about Milan Bandic because he controlled Zagreb for 20 years and in a very particular way as his own personal fiefdom. And Tomislav Tomasiewicz is now undoing a lot of this. And he's a member of a movement called Mojemo, which means we can. And it looks like they're going to be taking great strides on a national level as well. They're offering something different uh, to people in Croatia. It's a coalition of grassroots movements, um, which stands against a lot of the things which Croatian politics has stood for since independence, which is to say cronyism and patronage. So the latest thing he's done is to say, hey, you know those 150 vehicles we were going to buy for use by city officials? Um, We're going to cut that by two thirds. We'll only buy 50 of them. And what's more, at least half of them are going to be um, hybrids or electric vehicles. So these sort of things are going on. He's cutting the patronage. He's cutting the dubious appointments, the nice little uh, um, sinecures that people have on governorships of school boards and things like that, cutting them way back, cutting payments for them back, just trying to make the whole thing a lot more transparent and, uh, could we dare say, democratic. It may make him very popular among voters, but how long until he gets 
pushed out by those who fear for their own positions. Well, that's it. I mean, you've, you've got the tentacles of the previous regime are obviously still there. Now, the question is, how do you either convert them to the, the new way of thinking or root them out? And that's the challenge you always find when there's this, been this sort of uh, en entrenched uh, system of patronage in any particular place. It's how you manage to remove that system of patronage without, you know, causing the, the, the tree itself to die, if you like. Finally... A new passport, a new stamp for your passport, Guy. In between Croatia and Ser Serbia, we have we have a new country, which which is wonderful. It's sprung up from where? Indeed, I mean, you, you can. How do you create a new country in the middle of the Balkan Peninsula? And yet, the Verdis Republic has managed to do this. And the Verdis, Re Verdis Republic is a small piece of land in what is, in effect, no man's land between Serbia and Croatia, and it describes itself as a sovereign state claiming an uninhabited parcel of disputed land locally named as Pocket 3 of the Croatia-Serbia border dispute on the western bank of the Danube. So it, they've taken advantage here, these, these enterprising people behind the Verdis Republic, uh, of this fa the fact that there is, has been this long-running dispute between Serbia and Croatia. Serbia says it wants its, its border to follow the, the path of the river uh, Danube. Uh, along the, along uh, the border with Croatia. Croatia says, hang on a second, the Danube didn't used to flow like that. We want some bits of land which you're claiming. And um, this dispute has been intractable, and into this has waded, uh, quite literally probably, the Verdis Republic. And they now claim to have more than a 1,000 citizens, although I don't think anybody's living there, Emma. <laughs> we haven't arrived yet. We'll sort them out. Guy Deloney, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. That was our Balkans correspondent, Guy Deloney, making a land grab on Monocle 24. You with Monocle on Sunday. thrilling outpost has been set up by Monocle in the last couple of days. We've been in Athens to hear a highlight from this year's Quality of Life Conference. Dr Philip Schucht is Professor of Neurosurgery and the Deputy Chair at the University Hospital in Bern in Switzerland. He was one of the guests on the stage in Athens to join Monocle's Tom Edwards to talk about the power of the human brain. Are we getting dumber as a human species? Uh, I don't know, who, who thinks we're getting dumber? Hands up. Okay, who thinks we're getting smarter? Well, majority. It's a, it's a reassuring, <laughs> reassuring show. That's, that's very reassuring for us as a human species. You believe in us, that's beautiful. Um, is there some science to back that up? Um, there was a guy called Flynn, and he looked at that. And what he did, very smartly, he, looked, he tried to quantify intelligence. So how do we quantify intelligence? We need some kind of a test, right? Like a repetitive test we can put to a lot of people. Uh, one of them is the IQ test. It's not the only way to look intelligence. But it has the beauty of really measuring the processing power of your brain. How good are you at solving simplified tasks? And the other thing great about the IQ test, it's been around for 100 years. So you can compare the guys in the 1920s today. Remember the IQ test is always averaged at 100. So 100 is average. 140, you're a genius. Um, 60, you're more kind of, you know, state funny house and you need some help. Uh, you can take actually the people from the, the 1920s so if you would take somebody from the 1920s, you bring him here, you know how much he would score in our test? 70. 
So he's basically almost eligible for state help. You take off our kind of Joe average guy, you put him into the 1920s, he's a genius at 130. And this is what we call the Flynn effect today. It's incredible. It's what happens in our, I call them developing countries, because our countries really are developing ones. They're not developed. We haven't reached anywhere yet. Um, we see this. There's an increase of three points on the IQ scale per decade. So yes, majority wins. We are getting much smarter. What's that process then? You get to look inside people's heads. What's actually happening that's driving that process of improvement? If individually and collectively we're getting smarter, why does it happen? Yeah, why do we get smarter? Well, if you, if you look on how intelligence changes over time, it's not how good you are at math, for instance. Uh, that doesn't change over time. We're the same. What actually did increase a lot is our ability to think abstract. Now, why is that important? If we too are meant to have a human interaction, a successful one, then I must see the world through your eyes. I must understand that you are a human being, you have your own mind, you have your own actions, reactions, feelings, etc., ambitions. If I don't do this, I will never have a successful interaction. And this is called the theory of mind. The theory of mind is me having an image of your thoughts, right? This is abstract thinking. And this is super important for our intelligence. This is what changed over the last hundred years. Now, why did it change? Well, if you think back in the 1920s, life was very homogeneous. People around you, your peers were the same as you. They spoke the same language, they looked the same. They had the same genes, they had the same religion, they had the same thoughts, the same pop and all of that. Look at our world today, it's very diverse. People around you have different languages, they have different philosophies, different experiences, come from different countries. So at a very young age, our brain has to take all this diversity in and, and have a much more profound kind of abstract thinking. But if that's happening then on this sort of macro level, to be blunt, how come some people are much more as individuals intelligent than say some other people? Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, to understand intelligence, I think it's very important that we have an idea of how that thing between our ears actually work? Um, how does that work? And, and why does it work the way our brain works? Something that always puzzles me, when we look at little kids, you know, toddlers, newborns, I mean, how useless are they? How helpless are they? I mean, they can't survive for more than a day or two on their own. They can't even talk to us. They can't walk for a year or two. It takes them 10 years until they somehow could survive. This is crazy, if you think of it. Uh, and then compare it to you know, like take a crocodile. The crocodile hatches, he's born to bite, goes straight to business, catches the next fish. The guy's going to survive, right? But take the crocodiles of Africa and put them to my country, put them to Switzerland. Well, very soon, no more crocodiles, right? Take us, think about how we have spread throughout the world to every corner, living everywhere. And as we speak, we're going to the stars. This is incredible. This is the human brain. So the human brain is this incredible thing which you get very empty and then fills up as the experience of the world sinks into it. Um, maybe to give you another data, how many genes do we have? We have 20,000 genes. That's all we have. You know, that's enough to build a crocodile. But think of your brain. Your brain has billions of neurons, quadrillions of interconnections between them. That's a complexity you cannot build with 20,000 genes. So what does nature do? What was the trick of nature? It just builds this brain 
as an open canvas. And what then happens is that the world sinks in onto it. And so the difference between smarter and less smart people is the experience you had, especially in the first years of your life. The more diverse and intense these experiences were at young age makes how smart you be at the end. You're talking there about the development of young brains. Presumably then you reach your peak at a certain point, not wishing to go into detail personally, but when do you hit that peak, Philip? And am I, frankly, already past it? Yes, are you past your prime yet? This is kind of what I'm asking. The interesting one, and I have Tyler looking at me as well. So, <laughs> um, so very funny, when you look at, at peak brain, kind of when do you, are you best at solving specific tasks as we can measure in the IQ, that's, I'm sorry for most of you, and especially you, um, that's very early. That's like kind of when you're 10, 20, for some functions, maybe when you're 30. Um, so, and afterwards, it's just like a long way down, unfortunately. But, think again of what makes the brain. The brain is not a machinery you get at the beginning and then it just goes down. The brain, and when now we talk about successful cognition, it's not about solving small tasks, it's about solving complex social interactions, socioeconomical problems. And because these only relies on previous experience, which kind of live in your subconscious, successful cognition peaks much later on. That's why in many companies you will have you know, excellent workers uh, who are best when they're 20s, when they're 30s, but the big brains who run complex uh, situations, complex human gatherings such as companies, are people like Tyler, because they rely on decades of meaningful interactions with humans. That was Dr. Philip Schucht in conversation with Tom Edwards at this year's Quality of Life conference in Athens. Here with Monocle on Sunday, let's go back to our panel, joined in the studio here in London by Terry Stiasny and Stephanie Boltzen. And Christoph Munger, head of the foreign news desk at Tagus Anzeiger, is holding the fort on a foggy day in Zurich. Um, Christoph, foggy day, but a huge, huge uh, referendum being held today. I mean, the, the Swiss have these wonderful referendums every couple of months where they decide everything. Uh, today is an enormously important one. It's a very important uh, day because of the same-sex marriage referendum. However, I mean, it would be really be a big and uh, uncomfortable surprise if it wouldn't pass. I mean, I've, I'm expecting about between maybe 52 and 62 percent, yes, even more. However, uh, I mean, basically Switzerland makes up uh, for makes up uh, an omission. I mean, we've had the, the, the registered partnership since 2007. At the time then, uh, all, already uh, lots of uh, Western Europe countries had the same-sex marriage. The Dutch uh, went ahead in 2001. And now we have 16 uh, countries in, in Europe, basically Western Europe, uh, that ha they have the, 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 the gay marriage. And now Switzerland is about to join them, uh, voted by, by the people, which makes it even safer and uh, which uh, ends the discussions. It, it wasn't much disputed in, in, in the parliament, really. However, there's always a, a group in Switzerland that, that can uh, make a referendum. It was the, the, the right-wing parties and even the, the, the biggest part in Switzerland, uh, 30% uh, uh, People's Party, uh, they, they supported the, 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 no, the no campaign. However, they didn't uh, campaign very aggressively because they most probably realized that they can't win a lot uh, on this Sunday. 
but I mean, it still has to be voted first. I mean, the the, the, the poll stations are open another uh, 70 or 69 minutes, uh, but uh, I'm expecting a, a, a yes. Christoph, I don't mean to absolutely skewer you as the uh, the only Swiss representative on the programme today, but I mean, this is not long, a few months ago, that the Swiss were celebrating uh, women's suffrage of, of a full, big, fat 50 years. And now we're only just coming to the party when it comes to same-sex marriage. I mean, many people say it is a conservative country. It is a traditional country. And you just think that doesn't quite cut it in terms of an argument or justification. I mean, why is it that Switzerland just takes so long with this kind of stuff? And that, that's true. Switzerland is most definitely conservative country. I, I, I agree there. It it takes uh, long because it 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 has to go through through lots of institution. At at the end, very often the the. The, the, the people has to vote on it. We had the same uh, with the membership of the United Nations. It took decades. We have the same with the with the the the, the women's uh, voting law and the right to to vote. It, 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 we were much behind, but that's it. it take, because it it has to go to, through so many institutions. I think that's that's the main reason that it takes so long. And that then, of course, conservatism uh, is is very deep rooted in Switzerland. We we are well off. We have our, our, the country works basically more or less, and so people don't think we have to. That people don't want to change a lot. Yes. Stephanie is shaking and nodding her head in equal measure here with a wry smile on her face. So problems with procedure, but also a deep rooted mentality. Well, I, I, I know Switzerland quite well and I also think it has a lot to do with the role of women per se and because um, there's a lot of rural areas, of course, and if you only look at how difficult it is uh, to ha- have a career as a woman and uh, children being looked after, so normally primary school kids go to school from 8 to 12. It's almost impossible to do a job then. And it, it has been in Germany. West Germany is very similar and, that, and very conservative as well. If you don't look after your children, you're not a good mother. So I think that's very deep rooted in Switzerland and is still in Germany. Um, it is an astonishing day, isn't it, today, that we are only thinking about same-sex marriage as becoming law in, in, in Switzerland when it is just stitched into so many other Western cultures as just being part of life now, Terry. Yes, I think, well, maybe, you know, maybe Switzerland, maybe Switzerland's change is speeding up a little bit. I mean, if you think that for women to get the vote was what, you know, after the First World War in Britain in 1971. So you had a sort of 50 year gap there. But, you know, when same sex marriage, other countries have had it for maybe 10, 20 years. Maybe they're, maybe they're getting there at a slightly faster pace, you know, than, than they were. But, uh, yeah, as you say, it, it's, you know, it is a country where it takes a long time to change things. And, and obviously, you know, I, th- I think, you know, as, as Christoph pointed out, you know, the poll are sort of overwhelmingly in favour and it does seem like this will go through. So maybe people do do come round to these ideas. T- Terry, let's move on to a story that's on absolutely every single front page here in the United Kingdom at least, uh, which is queues to buy fuel, to buy petrol yesterday here in the United Kingdom. Um, Stephanie's husband apparently is one of the only people in London who managed to fill their tank yesterday. You don't know how lucky your husband was. Well, he, was <laughs> he was in Manchester. That's why. <laughs> so there's petrol in Manchester anybody who's listening so in Manchester. Don't drive all the way to Manchester yes. and run out of petrol halfway. Exactly. It's absolutely everywhere. This is, an, this is a big old problem here in the United Kingdom and, and it's turned into a political row again, isn't it, uh, Terry? The, the issue is that there aren't enough lorry drivers, HGG, HGV drivers um, around for whatever reason to bring the petrol to the pumps. There is enough petrol, we just can't get it. 
Yes, there is there is enough petrol, and you know the trouble is the more every government minister says there is no fuel shortage, don't panic, don't panic. Of course, everybody in Britain then goes out and and panics and goes, and you can see the pictures here of the of the queues. You know, people aren't obviously necessarily panicking. If you need to buy your fuel, you need to buy your fuel. Um, but what there is is a political row about how to deal with this shortage of drivers, and the government has just announced that they're going to have like short-term visas for five thousand fuel tanker and food lorry drivers, um, visas for 5,500 5, poultry workers, uh, so that you will have people to pluck turkeys ready for Christmas. Um, but what the Sunday Times here is pointing out is saying that this is leading to uh, not only rows with the government, rows within the government. So they're talking about a, a dinner of the so-called Spartans here who were the real sort of absolute, we want the absolute purest Brexiteers who defied Theresa May. And they had a dinner to, to celebrate this where they appear to have had enough food and they all obviously managed to get there and didn't run out of petrol on the way um but there's there's two sort of points of view here among those kind of brexiters who one half of whom are saying well we don't want more immigration one of the reasons we had brexit is that we do not want immigration to fill labor shortages is that you should just be able to increase the wages and your lorry drivers will come and people will retrain you know which is a lot easier said than done because we don't ha even have the tests for people to lorry be a lorry driver let alone whether that is a job that you would want to do with very long hours and so on and the other group saying well look now that we're out of the eu we can have our own limits on immigration we can unilaterally say we want you know to have bring in poultry workers or lorry drivers. Um, but one of the questions is, are people going to want to come? Is this really the problem? Is the problem not that, you know, lorry driving, so haulage is an integrated system around Europe and people, you know, are managing supply chains all the way from sort of right the north of Europe to the south of Europe? And if, if it's more complicated to come to the UK, why would people necessarily do that? Would you want to come to Britain for three months to, to pluck turkeys for Christmas? Who wouldn't? I couldn't think of anything rather I'd do. In the sort of 50 seconds we've got left. Christoph, I mean, how's the rest of the world seeing this? I know that Liberation's front page was pretty damning about the, the United Kingdom and, and, and people are, are sort of taking quite a wry view of as of, of, as to what the Brits are doing and the, and the mess that many out of the country says is, is a mess of their own making. Yeah, I mean, we, the, our first reaction was that, uh, that it is a consequence of Brexit, but however, it's difficult to tell from that far away. But uh, of course, it seems that it, it's somewhere uh, the receipt of Brexit somewhere. Thank you very much indeed. Stephanie, your thoughts on this briefly? Are you going to be volunteering to pluck some turkeys for Christmas? Um, no, I'm, I just yeah, don't no. think you need to. I think you might be all right. I, I need to think whether I spent uh, Christmas in Germany, maybe, to be sure that I got the turkey on the table. <laughs> Stephanie Poltson, Christoph Munger and Terry Stiesny, thank you so much for joining me on Monocle on Sunday. My thanks also to Monocle's Chris Chermak and Guy Delaunay for joining us on the programme. My thanks to our producers, Rhys James and studio manager in Zurich, Desiree Bendley, and Nora Hall was looking after the sound here in London. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week. For now, from me, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you.